man, you guys are going to hate this sermon. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not my fault. It's a, it's a book, it's three chapters of almost entirely wrath and judgment. Um, I didn't pick it. It was assigned to me by Zach Van Dyke, so you can send him your hate mail. Um, but we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it, right? Because if we don't talk about it, then we will be in danger of kind of chopsticking the qualities of the divine that we do like until we are left worshiping a God who may be very easy to live with, but probably doesn't exist. So we got to talk about it. But afterward, maybe you can go listen to the podcast of the Galatians series as like a palate cleanser. I want to talk about sugar. For sugar causes the release of dopamine in our brain, which makes us feel good. There are theories about why this is. One is that sugar does this because our bodies are designed to look for high calorie foods, which would make sense if we kind of started out as hunter-gatherers, you know, uh, vegetables aren't particularly calorie dense, Uh, meat was hit or miss, literally. And um, so it would be helpful for us to find things that were uh, high calorie if we spend all of our days looking for food. So fruits and berries and such would be particularly helpful and we would, when we'd find them as a survival tactic, our body adapted to release dopamine when we eat the sugar uh, because it helps us stay alive longer. That's calorie-dense food. It's a chemical reward. However, fast forward through today, and uh, while nature has made sugar very hard to find, um, man has made it shamefully easy, right? I mean, it's, I think it's actually harder to avoid sugar now than it is to actually find sugar. If you've done Whole30, any of the diets, you know this, because you, you, you read the labels, right? You read the labels and you find that there's sugar in everything. It's everywhere, in stuff that you don't even think of as sweet, right? Bread, crackers, ketchup. Don't even get me started about Chick-fil-A sauce, guys. 140 calories for a packet the size of a Jolly Rancher. It's terrible. And, and the breading even, the breading on the nuggets. Despite what I used to believe, they have not been sprinkled with the dust of a thousand fairies. That's just sugar. It's sugar in the breading. It's everywhere. The, the daily recommendation, by the way, is not more than six added teaspoons. For reference, a can of soda has eight added teaspoons. So if you're using that can of soda to knock back your hot dogs on sugar-filled buns with a side of sugar-filled baked beans, you might as well break out the insulin because we are already over the limit. But, but here's, here's what I think is the really sinister part, right? Let's say that you decide to eat that cinnamon sugar Valhalla bakery donut at the graduation. You know you shouldn't, but you do. And you think, I'm only gonna eat half of this because it's just so enormous. But then you start to eat it and you realize, I've eaten the whole thing. And then you feel bad. You feel bad that you've eaten the whole thing. You know what makes you feel better when you feel bad? Dopamine, right, big shot of dopamine. So you eat another donut to fix your guilt problem. This is all hypothetical. And, and I joke, but, but this, this cycle is such a true reality of the standard American diet. The acronym for that is SAD, by the way. It's such a true reality of the standard American diet that, that doctors are calling sugar the new smoking, and they're demonstrating in lab tests that it has uh, addictive, princi- addictive properties similar to that found in cocaine. It is a vicious cycle. You eat the sugar, you want more sugar. You eat the sugar, you want more sugar. The cycle perpetuates itself. So we're gonna spend some time this morning talking about cycles that are hard to break. And we're gonna talk about the cycle of God's history with his people. We're gonna be talking about the cycle of God's story with us. And we're gonna be looking specifically at the book of Zephaniah. We're in this Minor Prophets series, which we're wrapping up. And, And through the Minor Prophets, we've gotten to hear the voice of God through the mouth of man warning his people, admonishing them. And we're gonna be looking today at the book of Zephaniah, but as we wrap up this Minor Prophet series, what I really want us to do today is to be able to look at kind of the big picture, the grand narrative that we've seen throughout this series. So can we put up the timeline, please? 
Zephaniah is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, Israel used to be one nation, and then they broke off into Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And we've been studying several prophets who have come to warn God's people to the north and to the south, um, even Assyria in the north who, who conquered the northern kingdom. And the people, when, when the prophets come and they warn them, the people repent, often, actually. They repent, they change their ways, but then eventually they get back up to their old tricks, and then God will often send another prophet So Zephaniah is prophesying to Judah after the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722, but before Judah's own fall to to Babylon in 586 BC. So so Judah has had the opportunity to see, to witness the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. They've seen what happened to Israel, and they've also had additional prophets sent to them to warn them. And yet still we see in this text that Judah has gotten back up to her old tricks. Now they give lip service to God. They do, they bow down to God Almighty, but we see in the text that they're also, they're also bowing down to Molech, which is a God who, who demands child sacrifice. And they're bowing down to the starry host of heaven. They're worshiping the stars. And, and Zephaniah shows up and he has some pretty terrifying things to say to them. So this is not in your bulletin. You can just listen as I read. Zephaniah chapter one, verse 17. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Now, I've never personally had my entrails poured out like dung, but it doesn't sound like a slap on the wrist. I mean, God is preparing to pour out the fire of his wrath, not only on Judah, but to the north, south, east, and west, eventually onto the whole earth. Now, what on earth made God so mad? Literally, what on earth brought God to the point of saying, I will make a terrifying end to all mankind? I think the wrath of God is one of the most challenging things that we encounter in our faith, and I'm not gonna be able to resolve that for you today, but, but we cannot read the Bible without reckoning with it. And so my hope today for this sermon is is maybe it'll just be a jumping off point for you, a point for you to start wrestling with God in prayer about it as I've often had to do myself. What on earth makes God so mad? We're gonna take the next few minutes and we're gonna kind of review God's history with his people. And I know this will be riveting to four of you, but I need you to stick with me because this is important stuff. It's important for us to know the whole story that we're examining. Because here's the thing, we cannot understand events or people or motivations if we are not dealing with the whole story. We need the whole story. For example, um, I was watching my nephews a few years back uh, over lunchtime and, and I think Austin, the oldest child, was maybe four at the time. So, and he was your typical first child, sweet, responsible, thoughtful. And then Aiden, his little brother, in addition to being two, was <laughs> just a tiny monster. I mean, if he could grab at you, he would. If he could bite something, he'd do it. Uh, none of this won him the benefit of the doubt. So one day we're, we're, we're there at the house and Austin comes running into the kitchen, crying, just sobbing. And he tells me that Aiden has eaten his moon pie. And, and I go out into the, the dining room and sure enough, there's Aiden face covered in marshmallow, hoarding the crumbs like Gollum, my precious, you know, and Austin is just sobbing. And so I'm like, okay, buddy, we'll get you another moon pie. So we go into the kitchen, I get him another pie. He's still sobbing while he eats his moon pie. (laughs) And so then I just ask him, hey, how did Aiden get your moon pie anyway while he's in his high chair? And Austin, suddenly the crying stops. And he says, it was on his tray. And I was like, oh, okay, and, and, and how did it get on his tray? I had put it there. 
I was like, okay, and why did you put it there? And he goes, because he had traded me my fruit snacks for, his, for the moon pie, his fruit snacks for my moon pie, but then I decided I didn't want it anymore. I wanted my moon pie back. And I was like, okay, buddy, calm down. At what point did you decide you wanted the moon pie back? After I had ate the fruit snacks? I got swindled <laughs> out of a moon pie because I wasn't dealing with the full story. Guys, we need, if we want to understand anything, we have to have the full story. And to understand something so big, the wrath of God. I mean, we're never going to fully understand it, but, but we will grossly misunderstand it if we're not dealing with the whole story. So let's take a look at that story. If you've heard the sermon on Haggai, this will be kind of a refresher for you, but again, it's just that important. So sorry, not sorry. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and he gave them the beautiful creation to live in and care for, and there was only one stipulation. Just don't do this one thing. But then the devil came and he tempted them to do that one thing. And through their disobedience, through their sin, suffering and death entered the good creation. And the creation itself became bent. Things hurt that never hurt before. They bled. They got cold. And yet despite their rebellion, God still chooses to provide for them. He makes them warm clothing to cover them. He saves them from destruction and he hopes that the pain of this experience will drive them away from the sin that is now killing them and back toward his goodness and grace. And it works for a while. But then Cain is born and his brother Abel and, and Cain kills him in a jealous rage. And the people continue to get more and more wicked until by the time of Noah, God is grieved that he ever created man. And so to stop this kind of spread of evil across the earth, God takes good Noah and his family and the, and the animals and their pairs and he puts them in the boat and the whole world floods and God hopes that while he saves the remnant that, that, that the pain of this experience will push them away from the sin that is killing them and back toward his goodness and grace. And it works for a while. The remnant then repopulates the earth but even these new people have a hard time living with God their creator because they keep doing different versions of that one thing and becoming increasingly more wicked and violent. And so God, in an attempt to draw the people back to himself but not wipe them out entirely, again, to draw the people back to himself, he, he chooses the nation of Israel to lead them by example. He wants Israel to be his display people, live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Be so good to one another. Be so remarkable in how you treat one another that the rest of the world will see you and they'll wanna know the God that you live that way for. Turn heads toward God, that's your job. But then Israel can't fulfill this mission because she keeps doing different versions of that one thing and God keeps telling them through the prophets, please, please turn away from this, but they ignore the voice of the prophets. And so then God allows the Northern Kingdom of Israel to fall to Assyria in 722 and the people are carried away in exile. Why does he do this? Okay, listen, because this is important. We think of this as only punitive, but it's not. It's more complex than that because God is more complex than that. We gotta remember Israel had a mission, live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that you turn people's heads toward God. God Israel was God's, was God's strategy for gathering all of his people back to himself. Israel is God's strategy for rescuing the rest of the world. And so their love, their obedience, their faithfulness were all wrapped up in that mission. When they lost those qualities, they were no longer any good 
to the world or to themselves. They needed to have those qualities in order to fulfill their mission. And so God, in his grace, God, in his grace to all the people to whom Israel was supposed to demonstrate his love, God allows the northern kingdom of Israel to fall to Assyria, but he preserves the remnant of Judah and hopes that the pain of this experience will push them away from the sin that is killing them and back toward his goodness and grace. And it works for a while. Do you see the cycle now? God creates the world good, but men go in search of many schemes. God disciplines, the people repent, God saves the remnant, but then men go in search of many schemes. And then God disciplines, the people repent, God saves the remnant, but men go in search of many schemes. I mean, look at this timeline again. We're gonna put the timeline back up. Even Nineveh in Assyria is a, is a microcosm of this cycle. It just plays out in every different place. I mean, we have Jonah come 755 BC and he tells them to repent and they do. The people repent wholeheartedly. You've seen Jonah in the Wavebreakers, I assume, right? They, they repent, they change their ways entirely, but then Zephaniah is back 120 years later saying he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Nineveh falls in 612 BC, and they had repented, truly, sincerely, until they didn't anymore. Do you understand? Do you see the cycle? This, this cycle, this is what has brought God to the precipice of wrath. What makes him so mad? I'll tell you, it's, it's the cries of children being burned in the fire to Molech. It's the screams of a Jewish man having the teeth pulled from his head by Nazis. It's, it's the smell of flesh from the killing fields of Cambodia. It's the blood of a 17-year-old black boy lynched in front of City Hall. It's the tears of an eight-year-old girl when the first grown man walks into her room at the brothel where she's been trafficked. Guys, these are not caricatures. These are real human beings and their blood and their smells and their tears rise up to God Almighty year after year, decade after decade, cycle after cycle. And then suddenly it's not so hard to see why God is prepared to pour out his wrath on all mankind. And in the voice of Adam, our father, we cry, but I didn't do it, guys. Why do we live and die by comparison in this culture? It is killing us and it's a trick. It, it allows us to feel far better than we actually are. I mean, that's what's so offensive about the gospel, right? It's like, I know I'm bad, but I'm not that bad, right? I mean, I'm not like a Nazi, right? It's, it's just a little porn. It's just a little anger. It's just a little partying. You know, I can end the affair when I want to. I can stop if I have to, but even if I can't, surely that's not worthy of having my entrails poured out like dung, right? I mean, I'm not that bad, right? Guys, that is a narrow view of sin. Because the truth is that the real sin, the first sin, is that we think our way is better than God's way. That our timing's better than his time. Here's an example you guys will hate me for, but I might as well get it out of the way during the Zephaniah sermon, right? I know from our, from our marriage prep survey data that half the people in here in serious relationships are living with someone who's not your spouse. 
And for a percentage of you, that's your mom, and that's fine. But, and, 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 I, and I wanna be clear, I am not judging you. I'm not judging you because I've done it. I walked that path myself before I came to Summit, and I was already a Christian. Like, I didn't have any good excuses. I know how we get here. I know the objections. You know, it's, it's too expensive to live alone in Orlando. We're getting married. We're in love. You know, it's a personal decision. We're not hurting anybody. I know, I know how we get there. And honestly, I, I'm not even talking about morality. So, so don't tune me out because you think I'm going to guilt you with my antiquated 1950s theology. My point is not so much that, that you should move out because God wants you to, although, spoiler alert, he does. And my point is not so much that if you don't move out, God won't love you because, yes, of course. Of course he will. But my point is that we need to stop making decisions based on bad information. Our way is better than God's way. Guys, it's bad information. I mean, it's the same lie that duped Adam and Eve at the beginning that, you know, our way is better than God. He's, he's holding out goodness for me. It's a lie. It's a lie because, you know, it's not even about whether or not the thing itself, the act itself, is bad or causes harm. I mean, sex isn't evil. But then again, neither was the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve took and ate. The fruit wasn't bad. The fruit was good. It was delicious. It was good for acquiring knowledge. The fruit wasn't bad. It was the taking that caused the fall. The taking of a right thing in a wrong way. The fruit didn't cause the fall. It was the un timely bite. What the fruit was had, had nothing to do with it. Sex isn't bad. Sex is great. It's a gift from God. But like all other gifts from God, it is meant to be taken in the way prescribed. And when we begin to take it outside of those boundaries, that untimely bite does damage. It is hurting somebody. And on a personal note, ladies, I'm just talking to you now. Listen, I understand your fear. I, I know what it's like to feel like, you know, if I don't do this, I'm always gonna be alone. I don't want that for you. But listen, if it's possible that he will move on simply because you move out, don't you wanna know that before you take your vows? It is hurting somebody. Don't be okay with that just because the somebody is you. And fellas, you know, I, I'm not a man. I don't know what the motivation is there for you, and I don't want to insult you by assuming. But what I will say to you is this. Please, please do not leave us to guard our hearts alone. Eve took that bite while a silent Adam stood by and watched. Speak up. Speak up and tell her she is worth waiting for. Protect her the way that you were designed by God to do. My house was recently covered in poop. Wasn't mine. <laughs> I'd been prepping a, a regroup talk that I had to give later that night and I was sitting there on my couch and, and I started smelling poop. And then I looked over and there are poop smears all over my tile floor. And I'm like, what on earth? And I thought, you know, someone, someone walked in it, they tracked it in the house. So I go and I wipe it up, hit it with Lysol, no harm, no foul. And then a few minutes later, 
start smelling, and then there it is again. There's new poop smears right next to the ones that I already cleaned up. And I'm like, did I, how did I miss these? Just then my dog, Ramses, trots by and he's leaving poopy paw prints behind him wherever he goes. And I'm like, I see what's happening here. So I take him outside. He had stepped in poop, probably his own. Um, and then it had gotten shoved up into the pad of his paw. So, you know, I had to basically pressure wash that biz out with my hose. So I leave him outside to dry. I go back in, I wipe up the smears and I think everything's fine. I sit down, I start to prep my talk again. Then a few minutes later, I smell poop again. And I'm like, what is, ha is, it, is it just in my head? Do I have poop paranoia now? Is it phantom poop smells? Am I pregnant? Am I smelling someone else's poop down the street? Like, that's what happens, you know? Like, what is happening? And then just then my, my daughter Ember runs by and she is leaving poopy pity prints just like wherever she goes. So I, so I grab her and I pick her up. I look at her feet and sure enough, she has probably run through some of Ramses's poop smears and now she's making her own poop smear. My whole floor has become some kind of unsanitary Jackson Pollock number. So I, I put her in the bath and I hose her down and then I, I get out and I wipe up the rest of the smears and I think it's all over. And then moments later, new poop smears. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm, I'm done with this. Like I have just spent an hour in my own home hunting and cleaning poop on other humans and animals. Where is it? If I don't leave the house in five minutes, I'm gonna be late for a regroup. What is happening? I am done. Where is it coming from? And then it occurs to me, it's, it's on me. It's on me, isn't it? And I look and sure enough, there it is. Just at that moment, Rob walks into the house and I just start sobbing and he's like, what's the matter? And I'm like, there's poop everywhere. It's poop everywhere and I don't even know whose it is anymore. <laughs> Some sins may be personal, but they can never, ever, ever be private. You can't keep it to yourself. Sin is sticky. It gets on everybody else, whether you want it to or not. Even your most personal sins will affect other people because of how those sins affect you. Your poo is gonna get on other people regardless of whether or not you're the one who tracked it into the house. That is why every single sin is a danger to us and to the kingdom of God. And some of them, yes, some of them have more immediate and intense consequences in the present, of course they do. But they all have intense consequences in eternity because they all chip away little by little at our trust in the God who saves us. They all reinforce this naive lie that, that our defiance will somehow bring about our good. Every sin does this, every single one, which is why it's not good enough to just be a little bit better. It's not good enough to just not rape or not murder. We, we can't just avoid the worst of sins. We have to fight against the least of them as well because I promise you they are all fighting to make the same horrific end of us. When the British crown colonized India, the British officials decided that there were too many wild cobras roaming the streets of Delhi, and so they instituted this incentive program whereby the, uh, the people of Delhi could kill the snakes and bring them to the British where they would uh, be paid per dead snake. And at first it worked beautifully, the people killed the snakes, they brought them to the British, they got paid. But then, as the number of available snakes began to diminish, some entrepreneurial young people thought, you know what we could do? We could just breed our own snakes. Like we could breed our own cobras and kill them and take them to the British to get paid. And so they started doing that and then eventually the British got wind of it and they ended the program, at which point all of the breeders simply released their now worthless cobras into the streets of Delhi, making the problem far worse. 
Um, you may have heard our, our lead pastor, John Parker, talk about his annual python hunt to the Everglades on occasion. My husband sometimes goes with him. And so this past year, I decided to do a little research on python hunting in the Everglades, and I discovered that not only did they let um, volunteer snake hunters onto the land to, to help get rid of these invasive Burmese pythons, but in 2017, they also began a python elimination program whereby you can apply to become a python removal agent, and these agents are paid by the hour for up to 10 hours a day of snake hunting, and then they get an additional $50 for every dead, or for every dead snake they produce, and an additional $200 if that dead snake happened to be guarding a nest. Now, if only there was a way <laughs> to ensure a strong population of pythons in the Everglades so that I can keep getting paid 10 hours a day plus bonuses. Guys, it is tragically human that we repeat even the history we already know about. We're actually not that good at learning from the mistakes of others. Judah saw Israel's fall and yet they've, they followed in her footsteps. Judah saw the cycle and yet they repeated it. So, so no, maybe we didn't light the fire to Molech. And maybe we didn't take the first bite and maybe we didn't pull the trigger. Maybe we didn't do it ourselves, but all sin works together toward the death of those that he loves. The line between good and evil, it's not drawn between people who go to church and people who traffic children. The line between good and evil isn't drawn between them and us. The line between good and evil is drawn right through the middle of them and us. Right through the center of every human heart, which is why the cycle keeps playing out. Not only in God's history with his people, but inside of us, every single day, will we trust him? Or will we go in search of many schemes? I know it's hard to remember that God is active. I know it's hard to remember he's good, when we're lonely, when we suffer, when, when there are things that we want so bad that seem to be forever out of reach. And sometimes I feel like, you know, so much of my sinning could be avoided if God just wasn't so slow to act. But then, you know, we read these prophets. And by the end of the Old Testament, by Malachi, we see that, that the people have completed yet another cycle of wickedness and discipline and repentance and back to wickedness again. After everything, after everything they've seen, after all God's goodness, his patience, after blessing upon blessing that they've actually lived to see and receive, they're right back where they started. Guys, if God acted quickly, that act would surely have to be a sudden and terrifying end to all mankind. We must not mistake his patience for impotence. This is what on earth makes God so angry. Not that we never learn, but that we do learn. And we do it anyway. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. This is Zephaniah chapter three, verse eight. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. But then listen here, listen close to verse nine. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. 
On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. In verse eight, God sits poised to pour out his wrath on all mankind, and we know why, and we can't defend ourselves. And then we see this miracle in verse nine, then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. My daughter has this, uh, this teddy bear, it's pink. It has a stamp on its foot that says, my first teddy. Its name is Bear, um, and, uh, and she is super attached to this bear. My mom got it for her when she was just a baby, so she's taken it everywhere, um, and, and she actually uses it to soothe herself to sleep. She has this little ritual she does with it. She gets in bed, she tucks the bear under her arm, and then it has this tag on the bottom, and she begins to run this, roll this tag between her fingers, and the, the feeling somehow of that tag between her fingers helps her kind of calm down and drift off into sleep. So it's not even like a step, it's like an emotional support animal at this point. So, so and because she's, she's had it since she was a baby, of course this, this bear has had had all manner of rank smelling foulness spilled on it. You know, old milk, baby vomit. I'm sure there's a little poop in there. It's been dragged through the dirt. Our dog Ramses will occasionally get hold of it and chew on it for a while before she can wrestle it off of him. And Ember was so attached to this bear, is so attached to this bear that, that she won't give it up even for the amount of time it takes to run it through the wash. Even though it smells like death and cabbages, she will not give it up for even an hour to run it through the washer and dryer. So Rob gets this brilliant idea. I'm gonna order her a, a, another bear, an imposter bear. And I was like, okay, so, so he, he orders it off Amazon. Same pink bear, same My First Teddy stamp. It's the exact same thing. Bear comes in the mail. Then Rob proceeds to condition the bear by you know, rubbing dirt on it and smearing yogurt on it and all until it looks and smells exactly like the first bear, Bear Prime. And that night, he switches out the bears and Ember gets up to go to bed and you know, she gets in her bed and she suspects no treachery, right? She sees the bear, she, she lays down, she does her little ritual, she tucks him under her arm and she begins to run that tag between her fingers, at which point she sits up and yells, this is not my bear, the tag. The tag was different. It was a different size or shape or texture. And the tag outed us that the bear was an imposter, right? And she knew it. We're, we're busted. And you know what? Then she wouldn't give up the new bear or the old bear in order to put them through. The, I mean, even, so she just has two smelly germ-filled sacks of bear in bed with her. And, you know, you'd think I was asking Lord Voldemort to give up his wand just to run one of them through the washer. I didn't want to destroy her bear, I just wanted to clean it. It was super gross. The miracle of verse nine is that God's wrath, it's not meant to destroy, but to purify. God doesn't want to destroy his people. He, don't, he wants to put us through the wash so we can come out clean again, so, so we can be restored to our original goodness, so we can stop smelling like the rank foulness of sin and death. And so God's, God's wrath is poured out on us. And like gold in the fire, the dross is burned away. The, the, the best of what we are, the, the, the most of what we, it's all still there. But we don't want to give up the dross. We don't want to give up the dross because we, we don't know who we are without it or you know, we don't know if we can live without it. And maybe that's what hell is like. Just this stubborn clinging 
to the dross in us that's being burned away, maybe hell is God giving us exactly what we want, which is to cling forever to the sins that hold us in the flames. God's wrath isn't meant to keep us out of heaven, it's meant to make us fit for heaven if we can just stop clinging. And and verse nine is a miracle because he says he'll leave the humble among us and that's none of us. And he says that he'll remove the proud and that's all of us. And even if some of us weren't, even if we were humble and repentant and good, even if, if this cycle teaches us anything, it's that we would not be so for long. But this prophet speaks of a permanent peace between God and man. And God goes to the most extreme of measures to ensure that permanence. God is a God of justice. And so he does, he must pour out his wrath on the wickedness of mankind. And so he pours out his wrath for every rape and every murder, but also for every stolen glance, for every unkind word, for every sarcastic comment, for every cheating on our taxes, for every gossiping prayer request, for every bullying, for every manipulation, for every tiny fib, and also for every good and just and right and kind thing that we simply fail to do, God pours out his wrath. But God is also a God of grace. And so when God chooses to pour out his wrath, he pours it out on himself on his son, Jesus, who who lived the life we should have lived and died the death our sins deserve so that when we put our faith in him, the cycle ends in him too. My brother Jason died an addict, but the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. I will die a sinner, but the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. You might die a thief, a cheat, a murderer, but the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. And then that cycle of wrath will end with him too. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's what the scripture tells us and that's what makes the peace so permanent so complete and so shocking because we find out that Jesus doesn't simply throw himself in front of the victim to protect them from harm. He then throws himself in front of the perpetrator as well. And who among us has never once been the perpetrator? Do you want peace? It's here. Do you want to be forgiven? He wants to forgive you. Learn from our history. Look at all he's already forgiven in this wicked world. What have you done that he cannot repair? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did not leave us. Thank you that even though none of us deserve your grace, none of us can live up to the standard of holiness that is set before us, You didn't want heaven without us. Thank you, Lord, that despite that all we have is need, you decided to rescue us anyway. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness to us. 
Thank you for the way that you don't leave us, even in the cycles of our sin and our habits, Lord, you won't leave us there, even if what it takes to get us out of it is the, is the unsettling shock of pain. Lord, you want us back. You want us to inherit paradise. And Lord, you won't leave us. Thank you. Lord, I pray for courage for each and every one of us in this room today to be able to examine our lives and to see what are the cycles that need to end? Where are you trying to break through to us, Lord? Help us to see it. Help us to look honestly at who we are with clear eyes, but to not be afraid because we know the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus Christ. Give us that courage, Lord, and give us that hope. And we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put that hope. Amen. Amen.